I'm sure, like me, you're glad that the long winter nights are beginning to shorten and that it's not quite so dark when you're getting up in the morning or getting home from work. We often are quite affected by darkness, aren't we? We can find darkness oppressive or scary. We're maybe unsure what is concealed in a dark alleyway, or we watch the dark storm clouds gather. As children, we might have associated darkness with monsters or bad dreams. By contrast, of course, we associate light with goodness, brightness with warmth, floodlights lighting up a football stadium, fairy lights and uh, brightly lit shop windows at Christmas, a powerful torch highlighting a path, the light of a full moon reflecting on a lake. The beauty of a sunrise, long hot summer days, light and darkness, it's such a powerful image, isn't it? A significant contrast. In the midst of darkness, our hearts long for the coming of the light. And that sense of longing, that sense of of hope and joy when the light finally appears, that, that, that gratitude that we're not left in darkness, that's the sort of language that the Bible uses to describe spiritual things. The contrast between darkness and light is, a, is an image that the Bible uses to help us understand the contrast between good and evil, between the things of God and the ways of the evil one. Sin and evil is associated with, with darkness and goodness and holiness and righteousness associated with light. For instance, the psalmist declares, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or in another psalm, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Or the writer of Proverbs, using the imagery of darkness, says the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. And of course, if we think back just a few months again to Christmas and our carol service readings, there are the familiar words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And the prophet Isaiah, in various other places, uses the imagery of light to describe the coming salvation, the arrival of God's servant, the Messiah, who will rescue God's people. Perhaps one other bit of background to bear in mind before we come to today's passage in John chapter 8, and that's the Old Testament significance of the pillar of fire. We're told in Exodus 12 that when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And that pillar of fire, it symbolized God's holy presence among His people, holding back the darkness, protecting them from their enemies, guiding them in the way they should go the light of God's presence. That's important to note because of the connection between the wilderness wanderings and the festival of tabernacles. 
You might remember a few weeks ago when we were uh, looking at John chapter 7 that Jesus' teaching was set in the context of, of the Festival of Tabernacles. And when I was talking about that Jerusalem festival, I was, I was saying that as well as being a harvest festival, it was also a remembrance of God's provision for His people during their wilderness wanderings. His provision of bread and, and water, his, his uh, protection of them with the light of his presence. It's thought that part of the tabernacle festival in Jerusalem was that water was ceremonially poured out beside the altar. And it's in that context that Jesus says that living water comes from him. And it's thought that the lighting of the lamps on the golden lampstand was also an important feature of the tabernacle festival. And so again, what Jesus says about being the source of light is set in that general context. We don't know for sure when the conversation in John 8 comes on a historical timeline. It's, it's perhaps the case that the festival of tabernacles is not over. The crowds seem to have disappeared. But the Old Testament background and the pillar of fire and and the lighting of the golden lampstand during the festival will likely still have been in people's minds. And so it's with that background then that we come to John 8 verse 12. Jesus, the light of the world. And what a great opening verse to preach on this morning. John 8 verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Wow. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just imagine for a moment if you were a person stumbling around in a dark forest on a pitch black night, falling over tree roots, banging your head on on a branch, getting lost and walking around in circles and among the tree trunks. Or imagine being stuck out on a vast boggy moorland, you know, like Rannoch Moor. Uh, no, No lights at night, pitch black, nothing to indicate direction utterly lost and stuck. But then a light appears in the distance and quickly approaches. A person with a a torch or a lantern comes up to you and says, would you like me to lead you home? Follow me. In a similar but much greater way, in a spiritual sense, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. An I am statement again, one of seven in John's gospel, a statement with divine authority. I am who I am. I am the light of the world. Light for the spiritual darkness of the world. Light to rescue and lead people home, like the pillar of fire in the wilderness. Whoever follows me, that implies that Jesus is there to be followed. He's present, ready to lead us, will never walk in darkness. That's a promise that 
that we will never be without the light. Once we start following Jesus, if we keep walking with Jesus, we will never be outside of his light. We won't walk in darkness. We won't get caught up and consumed with sin and evil. But we will have the light of life. God will put his light and life within us. Just like the rivers of living water that he promised to produce in us by his Holy Spirit. We will have the light of life in our lives. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. John has been preparing us for this great statement. In his opening verses, John chapter 1, he built on Genesis 1 and God's declaration of let there be light. And he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In chapter 3, John says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And clearly this imagery of light and darkness is really important to John. He uses it a lot to explain the gospel message. In chapter 9, he records Jesus repeating this statement, I am the light of the world, and then his healing of a man born blind as a physical demonstration of that spiritual truth. In chapter 12, he records for us Jesus' words, you are going to have the light a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Even in his letters, light is such a key theme for John. 1 John verse 5, for instance, this is the message we heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's really obvious that John wants us to walk in the light. He wants us to allow Christ to rescue us from darkness. He wants us to follow the leading of Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus, the lamp going before us to light up the way. Jesus, the lighthouse shining out to show us the direction. Jesus, the flaming pillar surrounding us and protecting us. Light in the darkness. Hope in the midst of gloom and despair. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
It's such an encouraging, hope-filled image. Jesus, the light of the world, has come. He's come to rescue you and me from the sin and evil and darkness. How will you respond to that offer? Maybe you've been wandering around for a long time in the dark. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. You've been putting up all sorts of excuses, pretending you prefer the dark, refusing to open your eyes and see that there's any light on offer, stuck in the darkness of sin and death, wandering around in the spiritual dark without any great sense of direction or purpose in your life. Jesus says, come to me and let me lead you out of the darkness and into my glorious light. Yes, yes it can be uncomfortable to come out of the darkness. We, 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 we don't want the sin in our hearts to be exposed. We maybe don't want God to shine his light onto the things in our lives that need to change. But the alternative is to remain lost in spiritual darkness. And God wants to draw us into the light because it's, it's the best thing for us. He invites you to follow him and have the light of life in your life. Or maybe you're, you were following Jesus for a while, but somehow you got distracted. Like Pilgrim in, in Pilgrim's Progress, you turned aside into an alleyway and stopped following the light only only to find yourself somewhat lost again. You thought you saw something in the dark byways that looked attractive, and you went that way for a while. But you know you're in the wrong place. Jesus invites you to turn around and to come back into his light again this morning to acknowledge that you're in the darkness of sin and rebellion and to follow him back into the light. The light of Christ is a beautiful, attractive thing, if only we'll realize it. This world is a, is a darkened place from a spiritual perspective. It's affected by sin and suffering and death. Even as, as Christians who are walking with the Lord, we can feel a great deal of despair and sadness when we look around the world today or experience the hard things about this earthly existence. Maybe even wondering, what is the point of it all? Where is it all going to end? But Jesus, the light of the world, promises to lead us through the darkness, through the darkest of valleys. The promise is that He will never leave us we will never walk in darkness if we follow him. Like being led by a guide along a path through a valley on a dark night. All around us seems dark and gloomy, but the, the guide lights the path in front of us with his lamp and sees us safely through. And one day, his light, the light of Christ, is going to shine in the renewed creation. And as the book of Revelation says, his brightness then will be so great that there will be no need for any sun. Jesus, the light of the world, has stepped into our darkness so that one day we can share in the full brightness of his eternal light. 
In the meantime, as Christians, as, as the church, we shine as best we can with his light. You know, he's placed the light of life within us, and, and, and we bear witness to his light. We try to, to shine in this darkened world, bringing hope to others, helping lost people find their way to Christ. As a church, we, we try to bring transformation in our society, bring practical and spiritual help to those in need being a light on a stand, a city on a hill. And the church throughout the centuries, despite its faults, has done just that. It's it's held back the darkness through the, the, the practical helping of others and its political campaigning and its proclamation of the gospel. Jesus, the light of the world, has come. All who follow him walk in the light. It's such a great opening verse that I wanted to focus on that this morning. But let me just take you quickly through the rest of the passage as well. Jesus makes this incredible claim, but the Pharisees miss the point of the claim and focus on a legal technicality. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So they're saying that Jesus is making a claim, but he's the only one saying it. He's just blowing his own trumpet. He's just talking himself up. A valid testimony under Jewish law requires at least two witnesses, they say. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So Jesus is not alone after all. The other witness is the Father. What Jesus says about himself is true, verse 14, and would be true even if only he spoke on his own behalf, for he knows that he has indeed come from the Father and is returning to the Father. The Pharisees don't understand that, verse 15, because they judge by human standards. All this talk about the Father in verses 16 and 18 leads the Pharisees to ask, where is your Father? To which Jesus responds, verse 19, you do not know me or my Father. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. There's that phrase again, his hour had not yet come. It's not yet the time for Jesus to be arrested, and he won't be arrested until the time set by the Sovereign Father. But know what Jesus says, verse 19. He says that the way to know the Father is to know Jesus. You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. The religious leaders are stuck. The way to know God the Father is by accepting who Jesus is. But because they reject Jesus... They can never know the Father who sent him. It requires a step of faith. You have to believe that Jesus 
came from God in order to get to know the God who sent him. The same is true today. You have to start somewhere. And I always encourage people who are exploring the Christian faith to begin by looking at Jesus, reading the Gospel of John, for instance, and seeing what he claims. Jesus continues, verse 21, to speak to the Jewish leaders. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? Jesus had said something similar in chapter 7. He said that he was returning to the one who sent them and that they would, would be unable to come. He says the same thing now, verse 21, where I go, you cannot come. They cannot go where he is going because the only way to get to the Father is through the Son. And if they reject Jesus, as they are doing, then there is no other way to the Father. Jesus is returning to the Father by way of the cross, and it's only through the cross that sins can be forgiven. Therefore, they will die in their sin, verse 21, because they're not going to trust in Christ for their salvation. Verse 23, Jesus continues, you are from above, I am, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. It's a warning. You will die in your sins if you continue to reject me. If you don't believe and accept that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, I am He, verse 24, you will indeed die in your sins. Sin is what separates us from a holy God. All the wrong things and rebellion and darkness in our lives. We need to be rescued. We need to be led into the light. We need our sins forgiven and dealt with so that we can approach a holy God. We can't rescue ourselves. No human being can. We need one from above, verse 23, the sinless Son of God, fully God and fully man. Fully God so that he could pay the necessary price and fully man so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. He is from above. He's able to rescue us from sin and death and judgment and evil and darkness. But we have to believe that he is who he claims to be in order to be saved. However, verse 25, they really don't get it. They don't get what he's saying. Verse 25, who are you, they asked. That, you know, they know he's claiming something, they're just not sure what. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand what he was, that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Again, a strong affirmation that he is doing his Father's will. He speaks what the Father has taught him. God the Father is with him and has not left him alone. The Father is trustworthy, and the teaching that Jesus brings can be trusted. And then just the really quite interesting verse, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Or as the footnote puts it, when you've exalted the Son of Man, then you will know 
that I am He. Lifted up is a phrase in John that that refers both to, to Jesus physically being raised up on the cross and to Jesus' glorious exaltation to the right hand of the Father after His resurrection. John has already used the phrase in chapter 3 in speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. It's when Jesus is lifted up on the cross that His identity as Savior will be seen. Despite the shame and humiliation of the cross, it was on the cross that Jesus' glory was revealed. He was revealed as the Son of God who came to die for our sins. The great rescue mission of God was enacted. Christ triumphed over sin and death at the cross. His his resurrection on the third day, his exaltation soon after, was, was just the confirmation or sign of the completed work of Christ on the cross It was because he was lifted up on that cross that we know him to be who he claims to be, the great I am, verse 28, the Son of God. I don't think that Jesus necessarily means, verse 28, that the people he's speaking to will come to recognize that he is God. That certainly wasn't what happened. Most of the Jewish leaders never accepted him, although obviously there were exceptions like Nicodemus. To some extent, we might even feel a bit of sympathy for them. When we were talking about this passage in home group, we were wondering to what extent anyone really understood what Jesus was saying. It feels a bit like he's not being entirely clear. He doesn't just say, the Lord God is my Father. I've come from Yahweh. You're going to kill me by having the Romans nail me to a cross. I'm going to rise again on the third day and ascend back to the Father. The only way to have your sins forgiven and come into right relationship with God is through me. If you don't accept that I'm the Son of God, then you will die in your sins under God's judgment. But if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. He doesn't say that explicitly, although it's all there if you read this passage with the benefit of hindsight. Presumably, it's because Jesus couldn't be that explicit at this point in his ministry. That wasn't how it was going to work. After his resurrection, as he walks along the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, he's able to open their minds to understand all that had been written about him. After the death and resurrection and exaltation of Christ, the lifting him up, then the disciples came to understand what had happened. But his words are open to those who have faith even at this point. There's mystery in his words, but there's enough that is plain to allow people to reject him or accept him. Either the way to the Father is through him, or it isn't. Either he is the light of the world and the only source of light in our spiritual darkness, or he is not. And accepting the truth that Jesus speaks is a matter of faith, even as it is today. 
But people in Jesus' day did respond in faith to these words. As we read in verse 30, even as he spoke, many believed in him. They recognized the truth of what Jesus was saying, even if they didn't fully understand it all. Jesus, the light of the world, has come. Whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 